Hello, everyone. Welcome to Coop Jester, where we ask the big question, what should I do with my life? Enjoy. Hi, it's Dustin from Coop Jester. My guest today is Paul Broussard, co-founder of DeVille Coffee. First opened in 2008, DeVille has expanded from its first spot in downtown Calgary to 10 locations across the city, with five new cafes planned to open by mid-2022 in Edmonton, Kelowna, and Vancouver. So some highlights from our chat include opening your doors for the first time and what that experience was like for Paul, reorienting your business to unexpected shocks, and how serving people is a worthwhile life calling. Paul also made a post-interview request to switch his go-to song from Dear Prudence, a solid pick, to Death Cab for Cutie's live version of My Backwards Walk. So here's Paul. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Good morning, Paul. Welcome to Coop Jester. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here, Dustin. So I'm going to start with a really hard-hitting question. But what's your go-to homebrew method for coffee? Go-to homebrew method for coffee is French press. Hands okay. down. I really like the, I mean, we've got a really nice French press with a double stainless steel filter. There's like a coarse filter part to it and a fine filter part to it. And the reason why I like it is because there's just enough of the residual sediment from the ground coffee left in the cup. I feel like it gives more depth, more body to coffee than traditional, call it a filtered, paper filtered cup of coffee. You can also tell by looking at your cup of coffee from a French press, if you're doing it right, which is very challenging, uh, a little detail oriented. There's these really delicate oils left once the roasting process is over. There's really delicate mm-hmm. oils that are in the coffee bean. You like that extra <clears throat> little sediment, that gritty feel at the bottom. Let me just kind of clarify. It's barely there and it's at the bottom of the cup. And I do think that, that it adds a little bit. If you could only drink one type of coffee from one region, because I've noticed on DeVille, there's some Brazilian roasts on there. Is that your yeah, favorite? Uh, I'm very lucky in my chosen career to be able to sample just a ton of different countries and bean styles, roast types, all that kind of stuff. Right now, the reason why we have Brazil is kind of twofold. One, the price is very reasonable for the quality that you get. So we're able to mm-hmm. have a really high quality coffee at a reasonable price and therefore we're able to pass on savings to the customer you know your initial question like you know is there a country of origin where you would choose for the rest of your life you're on a desert island or desert island an island somewhere and you can only get one more Mm -hmm. cup of coffee one more bag of coffee i love mexican coffee i really do and maybe that's because i have some roots to mexico um, but, but realistically the entire region is amazing. Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Ecuador, El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's just absolutely amazing coffee all from all around the world, but I love our, our side of the world. Let's just say I find it a, 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 a more approachable cup of coffee. Direct trade or fair trade uh, and sustainable farming are kind of buzzy words in the industry. So as a consumer, why should 
I care about it? Does it actually make a better tasting product or do I simply feel better knowing that? We could talk about that for an hour, but I'll try and keep it short. So big difference between fair trade and direct trade. Fair trade is an organization that has, you know, grown over the last few years that deals with commodities like chocolate, coffee, etc. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think their intentions are there to do right by the world. Unfortunately, what goes along with fair trade is that there are, you know, there's an organization where people work and they have to get paid. And because of that, they have to pass those costs on to the farmer. They're kind of like the middleman. Whereas direct trade, there is no middleman. The word direct means we actually go to the farmer. There is no coffee broker in between us and the farmer purchasing green beans so that we can roast beans. Does it provide a a better cup of coffee? I wouldn't say in all instances, but in general, the term and the principles behind it mean that we don't have to necessarily abide by what's happening in the coffee, the world coffee market, the sea market is what it's called, where it's, okay. it's another commodity just like oil or natural gas and it's traded daily and it, and it spikes up and it, it goes down and it's all over the map. We don't have to abide by those same rules. We utilize our relationships with our farmers in order to come up with a a fair price for both of them and for us. So typically the price that we pay to the farmer was much higher than fair trade, but the quality that you get back from that, you kind of get what you pay for. In our particular roast, we absolutely, this is some of the best coffee I've ever had in my life. And I've had a lot of coffee and I'm really proud of the fact that, that these people get, you know, more money because I I think we're completely removed from the process. So I have uh, questions from kids here. Perfect. So what made you want to have a coffee shop is the first question. And the names we choose for things are also pretty important and why we do things are pretty important. So where does DeVille come from? Okay, so I'll answer the first one first, which is um, why a coffee shop? Why did I want to do this? Part of that answer is because I was just really no good at sitting in, in a desk. And I have a very entrepreneurial nature to me, which is hard to rein in. It's hard to sit in one place and do the same thing day in and day out. And, and some people are very good with routine, and I'm not one of those people. For me, I'd always been involved with food service or service in general for basically my entire life. And it was just natural. I fought it for the longest time. I thought that in order to be a good adult in this world, you needed to do something sophisticated and educated, which I, I do think education is important. But something always brought me back to service. And I think what I love about coffee and cafes is that you kind of get to do this restaurant thing without doing the full-blown restaurant thing. There's no cooks in the back and expensive you know, hood vents and dishwashers and crazy refrigeration units. What you see is probably what's out there. That's it. It's brewing equipment and there's some pastries there. But realistically, you're still providing this service to people, which I I find highly rewarding. Taking care of people, giving them hopefully a little bit of a bright point to their day 
is very underrated. It's it's so rewarding to see someone take a sip of coffee and just be like, wow, that's really good. You know, there's this part of that that it's really difficult to explain, but taking care of people, I think, is a good life's work for sure. And then as far as where the name came from, that one's a little bit more complicated, but I'll try and keep it short as well. My dad had 1979 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, and he thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I did not. <laughs> I, I thought it was like, whatever, <laughs> this big boat of a car. But my dad was just so proud of this car. And on his days off, he was all about cleaning and polishing and waxing. And, you know, there was not a piece of this vehicle that wasn't just spotless. So this DeVille to him, I think, was this luxury item that he was very proud of. And when I was starting to think of names for this cafe that did not exist yet, I was trying to think of who is my customer first and foremost. At the time, my customer was the downtown business people. And I thought, they're probably older than myself, and they probably like nice things. And so for some reason, DeVille just kind of happened. And I tried to get away from it. I tried to think of a 100 different names other than DeVille, but DeVille just always felt like home. So that's why DeVille is DeVille. Isn't it funny how we fight that initial impulse where it just feels good? And you're like, no, no, no. Your heart is saying do this, but your rational brain is like, no, no, I got to come up with something slicker or clever or whatever it is. Something cool. And I didn't think DeVille was cool. And all these years later, our demographic has completely changed. You know, it's not so much about luxury. It's more about people. But a name is also just a name. I'm much more proud of the organization and the people that we have. Can you give me the quick and dirty on coffee shop economics? The quick and dirty of cafes. For me, a, a lot of it is, and, and this is like probably I did a lot more analysis in the earlier years before you'd open a cafe or start looking at a site. But now a lot of it is gut feeling. Go to the area and take a look around and who's there, who's in the area, what businesses are in the area, who's your mm-hmm. customer and where are they at 9 a.m.? Where are they at 11 a.m.? Where are they at 1 p.m.? And if you can't figure out where the customer is, then you probably don't have a really good location. But I think location is is first and foremost. Rent is second to that. Mm-hmm. And ensuring that it's in the neighborhood of 15% of your sales. Hopefully, it's no higher than 20%. But sometimes you have to pay to get the great location. And then from there, you break it down into labor and food cost and overhead and ensuring that there is some money left over, you know, once you've done all your projections that you can actually make a living at it because food service in general is highly capital intensive. Like you've got to lay out a lot of bucks yeah, before you see any money back and then you have to do the volume. So some of our products, some of our coffee is $2 and 25 cents. If you're spending half a million dollars, you have to sell a lot of $2 and 25 cent coffee to to get that half a million dollars back. A lot of risk, capital intensive. For someone who doesn't own a cafe, what is a surprising high margin item? And on the flip side, what's a surprisingly low margin item? Our brewed coffee is a high margin item for sure, but it's low price, high margin, but you still need a lot of those cups of Mm -hmm. coffee to pay for the half a million dollar investment, right? So, 
And not only the right, half right. a million dollar investment, because not the entire price goes towards paying off that debt. You've got rent, which is extremely high. In some cases, ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars a month. Labor is extremely right. high. It, it can be nine thousand, ten thousand dollars a month. So a lot of people are quick to say the their prices are high or whatever. But it's like you know what they have to be high, otherwise we couldn't be here in the first place. Low margin item would be more kind of call it your oat milk latte, which though even though you say like all oh, right it's four fifty or it's four seventy five and that's a lot of money like that's not inconsequential for sure it's not a rounding error oh oat milk is not cheap oat milk isn't cheap almond milk isn't cheap (laughs) espresso isn't cheap the two thirty thousand dollar espresso machines that they're made on isn't cheap the you know the people that you take and you train and and you coach and mentor they aren't cheap (laughs) you know the location isn't cheap so yeah it all is just kind of wonder how did we even pay for this in the first place how are we still in business? Your mind gets a little scrambled if you think about it too much. There's a big difference between preparing to do something like open a coffee shop or a cafe versus actually doing it. Can you remember the moment you hung up your open for business sign the first time? How'd that go? Absolutely. I remember it like it was yesterday. We planned and planned and planned and planned and planned. And it was it was years of writing business plans in the background before anything ever came to fruition and that's not including trying to get a landlord to pay attention to you because you've got this idea that no one's ever really done in calgary in particular a lot of lead up a lot of training a lot of you know painting (laughs) like there's like hanging lights and moving furniture and we did it all ourselves we were there for every minute of that construction process and then you slide the gate open and you turn the music on and the lights are on and everyone's kind of this nervous excitement and no one shows up. Like literally no one shows up. <laughs> yeah. I think we did less than $400 in sales our first day. And that's a recipe for bankruptcy. I remember being somewhat grateful for it not being crazy bananas when we opened the door. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, after a couple hours and you've only got a couple customers through the door, you start to really question your sanity if you've made the right decision or not to spend all this money to try to take care of people. How long did it take for it to catch on? Well, I think coffee is a lot different now. Our consumer is much more educated that, you know, there is something different out there other than just the the big chains. Back in the day, like 13 years ago, people thought we were crazy because Starbucks, Starbucks is cool. You know, why would DeVille be cool? Why do you need another place to go up against Starbucks, who's obviously the king of coffee? And so it did take some time for people to, you know, trickle in, in the door into our first location, but eventually they did. And there are those people that like better quality products, like whether that's vegetables or a steak mm-hmm. or coffee. And for us, for sure, service is very important. You know, once you get that experience and once you have that product and you're taken care of by someone who actually cares about what they're doing and, and who the customer is coming through the door, then yeah, you're hooked. You're coming back. You guys were right at that first wave. I know it was a unique business in Calgary. 
But there were hints of it in Seattle and places like Portland. And even maybe Vancouver had one or two shops that were popping up that just added an alternative or just a different experience than, like you said, Starbucks or that old school coffee shop, which was, you know, a little musty, a little dingy. Yes, Seattle was ahead of the curve. So was Portland. They were kind of pioneers in this. And Vancouver was definitely there way before. Vancouver was there before a lot of people in bigger cities. You know, Chicago was always been a food town. And so they were doing some cool things. But I think even New York was behind the curve. I don't want to throw them under the bus, Mm -hmm. but they really didn't have, you know, it's really expensive to open anything in New York. I think that they were behind the curve. Vancouver was way ahead of what was going on. So I think the West Coast in general had this trend of better coffee with better trained staff in a cool, funky environment. We were doing something pretty pioneer in Calgary at the time. When you're looking to introduce, say, a new roast or a new menu item, do you look for a taste that's going to appeal to the broadest amount of palates? Or do you look for one that you personally just love? I think first and foremost, with any new product or any new coffee, you have to love it first. Quality-wise, taste-wise, price-wise, all of those things, you have to be in love with it first. Because if you don't, you're the guardian of the brand. You're the person kind of pushing this forward. So if you don't love it, then why would you think that your customers would? And so a lot of our pastries, a lot of our drinks are primary roasts for coffees. It's all very personal. It was selected for your customer and it was selected by us. You know, I think there's things where you launch because you're like, it's kind of a cool idea. I wonder if it's going to work and you try it at a store and it either works or it doesn't work. Your customer ultimately has the biggest vote because they get to say whether or not a new product succeeds or not. Overall, in general, it all comes directly from us. It's got to come from us first. And then the customer votes. But we wouldn't be expanding. You know, we wouldn't see the emails that say, this is the best cup of coffee I've ever had. That's pretty cool because you're like, I think so too. So right on. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I may be wrong in this, but my assumption is that over the years, you've become better at assessing either good franchise partners or the personnel that you hire. So has there been one question that you ask where depending how they answer, you know immediately that their chances of working out are much better? For sure. Absolutely. One particular question? No. But I think the answer to a question or series of questions regarding customer service, realistically, if you're not passionate about taking care of people in general, then you shouldn't do this. You really shouldn't be involved in, in food service. Food service is challenging. It takes a special kind of person, both introverts and extroverts, to want to reach out to a complete stranger with open arms and just be like, hi, welcome to this place. I'm so glad that you're here yeah. and, and actually mean it and be sincere about it. But as far as franchise partner, you definitely also have to have that component of some business savvy. I'm curious about the COVID shock. Had any of your contingency plans gamed out something like that? Did it equal your worst case scenario? Never. I don't think anyone saw that coming. I think if you thought, well, sorry, besides Bill Gates and some really smart people, 
that deal with infectious diseases on yeah. a daily basis. I don't think anybody saw that coming in the business community. And as far as planning for that or preparing your business to handle something like that, I don't know. That was devastating. That was all your worst fears about starting a business in the first place, just absolutely punching you in the face. In one day, it like changed. And then you're like, can it get any worse? And then it gets worse. And then you're like, can it get any worse? And that mm-hmm. gets even worse. And it's like every day is this constant um, addiction to the news and what's happening and, and really looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, is it possible that I'm going to go bankrupt? Is it possible that after 13 years of hard work and everything that you've worked on, everything that you're teaching and coaching and mentoring is going to disappear? And the possibility was very real. I'm really glad that it, it wasn't as deadly as it could have been because it could have been really yeah. bad. It could have been much worse. Yeah. Some businesses were able to pivot and move to online and delivery and all that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, our particular product is not a deliverable item. And I know that there are cafes and coffee that is delivered, but ours, it's quite delicate. Like you need to drink that latte within a couple minutes of us making it. Otherwise, there's nothing really special about it. In those make or break moments that you had there, what did you identify as being, if we execute on these one, two, or three key things and strip away everything else, what were those things you decided to focus on? Our customer, for sure. We knew that there was a few people out there that were still working and that were still out and about. We really found out who our loyal customers were, and they were the only reason why we survived this. I'm really grateful that they were there. That was our most important thing because we couldn't really change how we delivered our product, like delivered as in like handed it off to a customer. You still had to come into our store. Right. So for stores that were buried into a downtown office tower, that was very, very challenging. Those stores were closed for months at a time. For our stores that had storefront access, that's a little bit different. At least you can capture somebody that's walking down the street. Either way, it all comes down to those relationships that we had built and the loyalty that was shown us by our customers. Who is your trusted devil's advocate? You come in to the room and you're like, this is the best idea ever. But that person says, Paul, that's the worst idea ever. They may love it, but they're just like, you know what? You got to sell me this idea. Why it's so great. Like, I, I always like those dialogues. And also, when do you know not to listen to that person? Huh. That's a really good question. You could ask that of anybody, actually. I yeah, think I know. I, there's two people in my life, for sure. Uh, Carrie, my life partner, very, very smart yeah. woman. She definitely calls me out on on a lot of stuff like that's crazy how's that gonna work and then mark nolan who is my business partner and co-founder of deville a lot of what we have is because we bounced ideas off of each other because we called each other out on no that's crazy or yes that's a great idea but the devil's advocate component of that no that's crazy i think you just sometimes have to take a risk sometimes it it just might not be the most baked yeah idea you've ever had, in which case somebody calls you out on something and challenges you to think about putting it in a better context, growing it or baking it better rather than, you know, your first iteration of this crazy idea. I definitely think that, am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, you totally are. Okay, well, this isn't a big swear. 
No, I should have given you that, that on the get go. Like, Paul, you're freely allowed to swear. Most of them have been taken so far. <laughs> it would have been a different conversation. I'm just kidding. But um, no, I remember in my early 20s, I worked for a very busy, successful Vancouver chain called the Cactus Club. And I remember working with some just really, really, really smart restaurateurs. One of them basically said, like, Paul, whatever you do, don't believe your own bullshit. Don't ever, don't ever take success or, or this busy lineup or these sales figures and this growing, booming business as don't take it for granted. Like, don't ever think that you're better than someone else. And I've really taken that with me my whole life. I kind of like being the underdog. I like being the, you know, we have to fight for every single sale that we have for every success that we get. You have to fight for it. It's not just given to you. There is no such thing. There's a, there's a couple very fortunate businesses out there, whether it's in retail or food services that just open their doors and their blowout success. And these people are millionaires and billionaires or whoever they are, but that's never been us. Mm -hmm. I've never experienced success on that level. I've always had to fight for every single thing that I've ever gotten. So don't believe your own bullshit. Mm -hmm. Don't think you're better than someone else because okay. someone is definitely better than you, <laughs> whatever it is. You mentioned at the beginning that you weren't cut out for a traditional job or role, but you also said that education is so <clears> important. <throat> and you, I believe it was an MBA that you did. Did you feel that that prepared you in any way to be a business owner? And did you avoid a lot of the mistakes you would have studied in cautionary case studies or just make them in a different way? So my educational background is I have a diploma in information technologies and I have a commerce degree mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship. If I could go to school for the rest of my life and somehow get paid for it, that would be so cool. Maybe as a teenager, I was like, I hate school, but I, I think I just wasn't yeah. engaged. Formal education, I think, just teaches you how to learn. It engages that part of yourself where you're like, you start to thirst for knowledge. My business degree was awesome. It was eye opening. It was very engaging. I was a little bit later in life when I, when I took my commerce degree though, I was yeah. 28 at the time. And at that time I was ready to learn. My biggest takeaway was a entrepreneurship course. We learned about all these people in business. Did they make it just because they were dumb enough to open the business or did they make it because they were just that smart? One of the biggest takeaways for me was know what you don't know <laughs> and be yeah. humble enough to admit, like, I, I don't know this, <laughs> but it's a, it's a key component yeah. to this business that I want to open. So how do you combat that? Do you need to like educate yourself on what you don't know, or do you need to find the right people in your organization that can take that and be the expert in it? I think yeah. know what you don't know and surround yourself by people that help complement your skill sets that's really important if you could open all your stores in the morning with one song what would it be oh man that's impossible i'm sorry like there's like there's like yeah. 600 songs on my playlist and they're all curated by me so yeah. what about thursday morning thursday yeah. morning okay so i'm not a beatles guy because it was not it's just not my generation but i stumbled upon this song in um, Spotify, and it just kind of came up on this. You might like this. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is like really cool. And I thought it was a new release. Turns out it's not. 
<laughs> Turns out it's the Beatles, probably from the sixties <laughs> or the seventies, and it's uh, yeah. called Dear Prudence. It's just this mellow, acoustic, just beautifully orchestrated song, perfect for a cafe. So, Dear Prudence is my answer. It reminds me of Death Cab for Cutie, which you know you couldn't play enough of that. Death Cab for Cutie. Paul, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dustin. I appreciate you listening to me ramble on. You're a great host. Thanks, buddy.